Would you turn with me in the Bible to Mark chapter 11? Mark chapter 11, verse 27, where we're beginning today. It's page 1008, if you're looking at one of the few Bibles. Uh, so we're looking at this last section of the Gospel of Mark over the next couple of months. It's after Jesus has entered into Jerusalem, and it's leading up to the climax uh, of his uh, life and death and resurrection. And as we've said many times, Mark focuses on three questions. Who is Jesus? Why did he come? And what does it mean to follow him? And this passage that we're looking at this morning uh, really hits on all three of those in one way or another. Uh, but let me read uh, Mark chapter 11, verse 27, through the chapter 12, verse 12. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then didn't you believe him? But shall we say for man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others. Some they beat, and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. A good leader exercises authority and embraces vulnerability. That's the main point of a book called Strong and Weak by a guy named Andy Crouch. I think it's quite an insightful book. Uh, but the main point, he says, is that good leaders engage in meaningful action, that is, they exercise authority, but they also expose themselves to meaningful risks, embracing vulnerability out of love for the people whom they serve. And he says, in order to flourish as leaders and as human beings, we need both of these things, authority and vulnerability. Now, uh, that by itself might sound sort of theoretical, so let me try to flesh this out using a practical example. 
I want you to think about four kinds of parents. First, I want you to think about a parent who is neither authoritative nor vulnerable. This kind of parent is simply preoccupied with their own life. Not very engaged with their kids, they don't care, so they let their kids do whatever they want. We might describe that kind of parent as absent, distant, or withdrawn. Well, second, think about a parent who's authoritative but not vulnerable. So this parent orders their kids around, expects their kids to obey, punishes their kids if they don't, holds their kids to high standards of achievement, but this parent is not affectionate, compassionate, rarely or never says, I love you. We might describe that kind of parent as harsh or, in extreme cases, abusive. Third category, think about a parent who's vulnerable, but not authoritative. So this parent is always nice. Buys their kids the newest gadgets, their favorite toys, tries to get them anything they want, always wants their kid to be comfortable and happy and successful and express their individuality. So this parent might do the homework for their kid if it's too hard for their kid to do because they always want their kid to get an A. The only thing this parent doesn't do for their kids is set boundaries and enforce appropriate consequences. We might say this kind of parent is an enabler, or in some cases a helicopter parent is the new word. Right? But think about the fourth kind of parent, right? What we really need is parents who are both authoritative and vulnerable. In other words, parents who hold kids to high standards and demonstrate unconditional love. Parents who are tough and tender, strict and compassionate, not just one or the other, but both authoritative and vulnerable. That's the recipe for good parenting and for good leadership in general. Now, I think this is a helpful paradigm, and you can think about it not just with respect to parenting, but with respect to being a boss, being a teacher, uh, being uh, a government leader, a church leader, a coach of an athletic team. Right? In all these cases, we need leaders who are both appropriately authoritative and also appropriately vulnerable. Uh, someone is, because those are the kind of leaders that you can trust. Someone who's willing to step up and make a hard decision, even if it's not popular, but also someone who's willing to take the hit and bear the cost so that others will benefit. Now, if you agree with this idea that good leaders are both authoritative and vulnerable, why is that the case? Why is that, rather than something else, the recipe for good leadership? Well, according to the Bible, that's God's design for us as people who he has made in his own image. And uh, in the passage we're looking at this morning, we see that Jesus Christ, the true image of God, uh, the, the, the greatest human being who ever lived, the Son of God himself, Jesus Christ is exactly that kind of person. What we'll see in this passage this morning is that Jesus exercised authority and embraced vulnerability. And he did both of those things to a greater extent than anyone else who has ever lived. So this morning I want us to consider three things. First, Jesus' authority in the end of chapter 11. Second, Jesus' vulnerability in chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. And then briefly at the end, Jesus' victory in chapter 12, verses 9 to 12. So first, Jesus' authority. This is the focus of uh, the incident at the end of chapter 11. Uh, last week we read earlier in chapter 11 about how Jesus had gone into the temple in Jerusalem and started clearing it out. 
Now, the temple in Jerusalem was something that appeared impressive on the outside. It was a huge complex of buildings that had been under construction for over 50 years, and it was on 35 acres of land in the middle of the city. Uh, visitors came from far and wide to visit the temple, and especially to offer sacrifices. Uh, but Jesus came to the temple and he said, despite its impressive outward appearance, it is corrupt and spiritually powerless on the inside. And so Jesus interrupted all the buying and selling and said, God is about to bring this place down. The leaders of the temple, uh, not surprisingly, were not very happy about that. And so here in verse 27, they come to him. So the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, those were the three categories of uh, temple leadership. They all come up to Jesus together and they challenge him. And they say, who gave you the right to do all these things? Right? Now most likely they were thinking especially of what Jesus had just done the day before, clearing out the temple. But if you read the Gospel of Mark, throughout Jesus' life and public ministry, he acted and spoke with authority. And that was one of the things that people noticed from beginning to end. And they were marked upon it. So here's just a few examples of how Jesus acted and spoke with authority, not just when he came to Jerusalem, but uh, throughout his life. Uh, on a couple of occasions, Jesus said to people, your sins are forgiven. And people looked at him and said, wait a minute. How do you know? How do you know what it is? Only God can forgive sins, right? Ultimately, God's the one who gave the law. God's the one who has authority to forgive people. How can you go up to somebody and say, all your sins are forgiven? I'm telling you this authoritatively. Jesus also interpreted the Bible with authority. So many rabbis and teachers of Jesus' day, they would quote from other rabbis and justify their interpretations on the basis of a long line of tradition. But Jesus never quoted any other rabbis. He would only quote from the Bible and say, here's what it says, here's what it means. He talked about it like he had written the book himself. And people recognize that. How does he have the authority to pronounce so confidently about the meaning of God's own word? Jesus also healed people who were sick, again, with authority. He didn't use magical formulas. He didn't call upon the powers of angels. He simply touched people or spoke a word to them. And many of them were healed. Or their evil spirits were driven out, and people wondered about all these things that Jesus was doing. And then, of course, Jesus comes to the temple, the house of God, and acted like he was in charge of the place, even though he wasn't one of these recognized groups of temple leadership. So Jesus spoke and acted with authority. He did all kinds of things that only God had the authority to say and do. Amen. So these religious leaders come to Jesus. And they say to him, by what authority are you doing all these things? They ask a question that probably many people have been wondering all along. Now think of some ways Jesus could have responded to their challenge. He could have downplayed what he had done in the temple. He could have said, look, I'm just doing what Isaiah and Jeremiah and some of the Old Testament prophets did back in their day. I'm not really any different than they are, but he didn't say that. Or he could have offered to leave the premises. He could have said, look, I'm not trying to offend you. I know I'm sort of on your turf. If you don't like what I'm doing, I'll go somewhere else. He didn't say that either. He stood his ground. He didn't back down. He didn't walk away. He said he comes right back at them with a question of his own. You tell me. 
The baptism of John, was it from heaven? In other words, from God? Or did he just make it up himself? Now, you might hear that question and think, is Jesus just trying to avoid their question by asking some question that's totally irrelevant? No, that's not what's going on here. For one thing, it was a very common form of discourse. Rabbis would often answer a question by asking another question. And in this case, if the temple leaders would answer Jesus' question, they would find the answer to their own question. So let me explain that. So Jesus is talking here about John the Baptist. Okay, it's not John who wrote the Gospel, who's one of Jesus' disciples. That's a different John. John was a common name back then, just as today. John the Baptist was a preacher who had preached in the desert and told everybody you need to turn away from your sins and get baptized in the Jordan River. And many people had recognized him as a prophet sent from God. But the temple leaders, for the most part, didn't like John. Because the temple leaders said, in order to get right with God, you need to come to the temple and offer all the sacrifices that we're offering here. And pay your money, by the way, to get those sacrifices and pay the fees and etc., etc. So John was operating independently down by the river. And the temple leaders are like, wait a minute, this guy's competition. This isn't good for what we're offering here. Uh, so the temple leaders were not John's biggest fans. Uh, but the other thing about John is that John had not only called people to repentance and get baptized in the river, he had also introduced Jesus publicly and publicly endorsed Jesus and said, Jesus is even greater than me. So in one sense, uh, uh, John and Jesus were sort of a package deal, right? You accept John, John endorses Jesus, therefore you should follow Jesus. So if the temple leaders agree, John was sent from heaven, God sent him as a prophet, then they should agree with his endorsement of Jesus, and then they should follow what Jesus is doing and saying. But they don't want to do that. But they also realize, if we just say, if we say publicly, John was just a regular guy, and he was just making up, making it up on the fly. He wasn't a prophet, he wasn't sent by God, if they say that publicly, they'll lose credibility with a lot of the people. Because a lot of the people who would come to the temple also really liked what John was saying and said, oh yeah, it's right. So they don't want to answer Jesus' question, but if they would answer Jesus' question, they would find the answer to their own question. By what authority is Jesus doing these things? Well, Jesus offers two options, either from God or he's just making up himself. Right? Of course, the true answer is from God. Um, but the temple leaders want to avoid the question. You see, Jesus' question exposes the motives of the temple leaders. They weren't asking a genuine question. They weren't really seeking to know the truth. They simply wanted to protect their own power and then and run Jesus out. So they wanted to have authority without vulnerability. And so Jesus says in verse 33, I won't play your game. You won't answer my question, I won't answer yours. Now, before we go on to the next section in chapter 12, let me draw two implications here. Number one, Jesus was not weak, wishy-washy, and wimpy. If you look at certain paintings of Jesus, mostly from the 19th century and the early 20th century, 
Jesus is staring off into the distance, and his skin is so pale it looks like he's never been outside a day in his life. The real Jesus was not like that. Not only because he was brown-skinned and Middle Eastern, but also because he was a carpenter and knew how to work with his hands, and also because he could stand up to the temple authorities and didn't back down. These were the most powerful political and religious authorities within his Jewish community. And Jesus, and they questioned his authority, and Jesus wasn't intimidated. He didn't back down. Amen. Jesus was not weak and wishy-washy and wimpy. He exercised authority. Second implication, there are many people in the world who would say, Jesus was a great moral teacher. Maybe a prophet, but he wasn't the son of God. But think about all the things that Jesus did with authority. Forgiving people's sins, healing their diseases, interpreting the scriptures, clearing out the temple. C.S. Lewis wrote this many years ago. A man who was merely human and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic out of his mind, or else he would be a dangerous deceiver. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. Have you grappled with Jesus' claims to authority? Jesus leaves only two options. Either he's the Son of God, or he's an imposter. Jesus doesn't give a third halfway in-between option. Someone said either Jesus is Lord of all. That means he's Lord of every area of our lives and has the right to speak into every part of our lives. Or he's not Lord at all. He's not Lord of half of the world or half of our lives. Either Jesus has rightful authority over everything, or he's not worth following at all. So that's the challenge that we hear from Jesus' authority. And that's the first point we see. But second, we see that Jesus was not only an authoritative leader, he also embraced vulnerability. Now we see this in the story that Jesus told in uh, chapter 12. Uh, he tells Jesus tells a story about a vineyard and about some tenants uh, and about the owner. And in Jesus' day, there was a common scenario. In fact, many of the temple leaders might well have owned property out in the country, and they might well have been vineyard owners themselves, right? They would have had to work, probably live for at least some part of the year in the city. So if they couldn't be home to tend their vineyard themselves, they might have rented it out in hope of getting a good crop. Uh, getting some, getting a good return on their investment. So the temple leaders would have sympathized with the landlord in this case. Uh, the problem is, these tenants were a landlord's worst nightmare. They refused to pay any rent, and they repeatedly mistreated anyone whom the landlord sent to come and collect. First time, they beat up the guy. Second time, it gets worse. They struck him on the head and treat him shamefully. The third time, it gets even worse. They kill him. And the same thing happens over and over again. It's a complete disaster. 
I don't know if you've ever been a landlord. I never have. But what would you do if you were the landlord of a property? You would rent it out, your property. You would send your agents to collect the rent when it was due. And multiple times, your agents had been physically assaulted or even murdered. Now, I've known a few landlords over the years. I've known a few landlords who have had to deal with remarkably difficult tenants who refuse to pay rent or recklessly damage the property. But I've never met a landlord who would let things go anywhere near this far. Right? First time, most landlords would immediately call the police if their agent got beat up by the tenants. Right? Get the tenants arrested for assault, evict them for non-payment of rent, get some better tenants fast. Now, back in Jesus' day, uh, if you call the Roman police, they might say, this is a private dispute, you deal with it yourself. But what you could do is you could hire a security force to seize the vineyard and punish the terrible tenants. Um, but what did this landowner do? This landowner does something that no landlord I've ever known would have ever considered doing. Verse 6 is the climax of the story. It says, finally. Uh, he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying they will respect my son. Now, some people said it's possible there was some logic to the owner's decision if the, if, because in the ancient world, the owner wanted to formally press charges in court. He had to either show up himself or send someone with a legal authority to give the tenants the ancient equivalent of a notice to quit. By such a decision, sending his one and only beloved son would have exposed his child to great risk. And this landlord doesn't even send a security force along with his son to protect him. And in verses 7 and 8, the greedy tenants behave just as we expect them to. They want the vineyard for themselves, they'll even murder the owner's son in hopes of getting it. Now you might say, what was Jesus' point in telling this story? Um, well, Jesus' hearers would have quickly understood because throughout the Old Testament, the people of Israel and the land of Israel were described as God's vineyard. And in fact, surrounding the entrance to the temple in Jerusalem was a huge golden grapevine with clusters of grapes representing Israel as God's fruit-bearing vine. So the symbolism would have been clear to the people back then. God's the owner. Israel's the vineyard. The tenants are Israel's leaders. And the servants are God's prophets. And so if you read the parable that way, it's sort of a summary of God's merciful dealings with his difficult and rebellious people over the whole course of the Old Testament. Uh, many of Israel's prophets have told similar stories. In fact, that's what we read earlier from Isaiah. Isaiah told us a very similar story about a vineyard. And God does everything He's a, he's a generous giver. He does everything possible to cultivate the vineyard, but it produces no good fruit at all. And in the end, God says, well, it's going to come down. Verse 12, the temple leaders got the point. They perceived he had told the parable against them. 
their tenants in the parable. You see, they might have sympathized with the owner when they first heard the story, but reality, in reality, Jesus says, you're acting like the tenants. If you don't change your ways, you'll soon be evicted and replaced. Now you might say, what, what do we take away from this story? What's Jesus' point in telling this story for us? Well, in this story, we see a vivid description of our basic human problem. It's not just a story about the temple leaders back then in Jerusalem. It's not just those leaders who are like these tenants. The Bible says that from the very beginning, we as human beings have wanted to be our own rulers and masters, our own gods. We want to do whatever we want with our bodies, with our possessions, with our time, with our resources. We want to be accountable to ourselves. We, sure, we'll take God's good gifts. Maybe every once in a while pay a passing acknowledgement to God. But we act like we own our lives. We act like we own our stuff. And we, can, we have the right to do whatever we want with it. When in reality, everything we have is a gift. We didn't make ourselves. We don't, we don't keep our hearts beating. Right? Our life is a gift from God. And every so often, God sends us messengers to remind us God made us. We didn't make ourselves. We're accountable to Him. And we're not in a good place with Him, naturally speaking. But often we just pay them no mind. We go our own way. And the Bible says that's our basic human condition. That's the condition that all of us find ourselves in. But the story shows us what God did to rescue rebellious humans. You see, all of these parables are stories about ordinary life with a surprising twist. And the surprising twist in this story is not that the tenants mistreat the owner, right? There's, I mean, tenants and landlords have debates all the time, right? I've, I've known horrible tenants. I've known horrible landlords, too. It goes both ways in this world. I can tell a lot of stories, but we won't go there. Right? In this world, landlords mistreat tenants, tenants mistreat landlords. It happens all the time. But the surprising twist in this story is that after all that these tenants did to mistreat the landowner... He sends his beloved son, who willingly goes on his father's behalf. That's the part of the story that no one would ever expect. No landlord then or now would take such a costly risk to show incredible mercy to such terrible tenants. But that's exactly what God did in sending his one and only son, Jesus Christ, into the world. Jesus came as his father's representative with his father's authority to his father's property to claim his father's due. Jesus came to this world, to us, a people who God had made in his image, and yet we have done so much to spoil the world that he made. And Jesus came into this world and he claimed to have divine authority and he didn't back down one bit from his claims to authority, but he also embraced vulnerability. He held nothing back. Not even his own life. And that's why Jesus had come to Jerusalem. 
He wasn't going to be enthroned right there as king. He would endure rejection and betrayal and humiliation and torture and ultimately be hung on a cross. Rejected. And you might think if Jesus had so much authority, if he was the Son of God himself, why would he willingly endure such suffering? Why would he embrace such vulnerability? Why would he choose to lay down his life for people who hated and tortured and despised him? But that's the amazing love of God. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. And First John 4 says, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's the good news. That despite how much we've messed up the world and messed up our lives and caused all kinds of trouble and offended God, that God sent Jesus Christ into this world and Jesus Christ willingly sacrificed his life on our behalf. Took that we might be forgiven and reconciled with God and made right with him forever. Amen. Just look at Jesus. Consider his, how his claims to authority and yet consider how he was willing to lay down his life on a cross in love for us. See, leaders who exercise authority and embrace vulnerability ultimately inspire trust. You realize, I can trust that kind of leader. And look at Jesus. You can trust him. You can trust him more than you can trust anybody else in the world. So we've seen Jesus' authority. We've seen Jesus' vulnerability. Finally, and very briefly, there's one more theme at the end of this story. Mark wants us to know that following Jesus on the path of authority and vulnerability is the path to victory. Jesus' victory, verses 9 to 12. You see, if we stop reading at verse 8, we might think that these evil tenants win in the story. They've gotten rid of all the owner's servants, now they've gotten rid of the owner's son, now they're going to take over. But the story doesn't end there. Verse 9 says the owner's going to show up and put things right. And Jesus concludes the story by quoting a scripture, it's Psalm 118, verse 22 and 23. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in their eyes. You might say, what does that verse mean in this context? Well, Jesus is, again, standing in the temple, which is built of stones, huge, great big stones, and Jesus uses this phrase of a stone that's rejected by the builders, but it becomes the cornerstone, or that word could also be the capstone, which means the top stone in an arch. The one that holds the arch together, keeps it from all falling down, and is also the most prominent and exalted stone in the building. And Jesus says, by quoting this verse, that through his own rejection, that will be the way to his exaltation. The rejected one who was rejected on the cross is now resurrected and exalted as the Lord of all. You see, sometimes when we seek to follow Jesus on the path of authority and vulnerability, it feels like we won't win in this world. Right? 
Sometimes we just want to protect ourselves. We want to get as much authority as we can and have as little vulnerability as possible. But that's not ultimately the best way to treat others. You see, sometimes it feels like if we pour ourselves out in love for others, if we're willing to suffer for doing what is right, we'll finish last. But Jesus reminds us that's not ultimately the case. God can accomplish victory even through apparent defeat. One commentary, uh, James Edwards put it this way. This parable's testimony to the sure purposes of God would have conveyed a profound sense of hope to the church in Mark's day, beleaguered by persecutions as it was, as it can also in our day when the church is often caught in confusion and decline. You see, here's the point. In the end, God's good purposes will prevail. And if we fix our eyes on Jesus, the one who exercised authority and embraced vulnerability, if we follow him, and seek to walk in the authority and the confidence that he's given us. And also embrace the vulnerability and take those risks and be willing to suffer when he calls us to. To walk in love as he has loved us. Then he's leading us on the path to ultimate victory and glory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you. We thank you that you did not simply hold on to your authority. But we thank you that you came to give yourself in love for us. Lord, what amazing love that you, the beloved Son, God the Father, would come into this world and endure the rejection of people who didn't want to hear your message. Lord, how merciful you are that you have pursued us. For each one of us, there are ways that we have ignored you, disregarded you, denied you. We thank you for your amazing love. We thank you for your gift of salvation and forgiveness and redemption. We pray that we would become people who reflect the authority and vulnerability that you call us to. That we would be people who are confident but humble. That we would be people who are strong and loving. That we would be people who are courageous and who are compassionate. Thank you that you are all those things for us. In your name.